gospel is a beautiful word and one that you will hear people talk about in church all the time. Um, if you were to just translate it rather easily instead of using the word gospel, but you wanted to get more specific, in English, the term gospel could be translated or defined or explained with the two words what? Good news. Good news. Not all news is good. There's bad news. There's just this kind of informational news. And not all good news is good news. Uh, we could get rather excited about, hey, guess what? I had a young man come up to me today. Uh, I married him and his, uh, his fiancé this, this past summer. He said, hey, I got some good news. And my re immediate response was what? When is she due? That was kind of the way I went, right? Maybe thinking of Christmas and, well, you know, you know babies coming. Anyway, so I said, and he said, oh, no, 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 no. And he told me something else. So I thought that was kind of interesting that you can have good news. Hey, guess what? I got a promotion. Hey, guess what? I got a great grade on this test. Hey, guess what? Finally found a girlfriend. You know, whatever it is that's absolutely kind of making your heart go uh, up and down and kind of motivate you, there's good news, and then there is really, really, really good news. And when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John describe as the good news, it's not just, hey, I got a job, or hey, I found a girlfriend, or even, hey, we're having a baby. It's let me tell you about how God's incredible plan is now coming to the point in which it was designed altogether to, to get to. It was literally, it's this high point, it's this climax, it's this, this is what it's all about. And that's the good news that Jesus Christ came to die in our place for our sins so that you and I might have peace with God and now enjoy him forever and ever and ever and ever. That's the good news of all good news, but you and I have a hard time appreciating that or uh, even kind of valuing that. It is normal for us to get really excited about lesser things, and that's why we're here, actually. I'm not here to scold you. I'm not here to try to help you become just generically a better person. I'm here this morning to proclaim to you the good news about God's ultimate design and ultimate plan for you and for me, for the world, for the universe in the coming of Jesus Christ, God's only son. And so there are three things that I just want to, at the very beginning of this message, uh, kind of in my introduction area, to, to help you understand what this ser series is about. There's three things I want you to take home with you, three things that I want you to appreciate, because we're talking about the gospel of the law, that's Exodus, that's the Ten Commandments coming down from God, the gospel that we find in both the law as well as the land the nation of Israel, and what that time period is. We're going to be looking at stories in the Bible from the book of Exodus all the way up through Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, where we see that those stories in themselves aren't really the point. Sadly enough, I have to confess, I've made this mistake. I have preached the Bible as though it's this incredible book to give us tips on living. Anybody want to learn how to overcome temptation? Turn to the book of Genesis. Let me tell you a story about a guy named Joseph who was really in a difficult time and he had this opportunity and no one was looking and he had this great temptation, but he fled. You need to flee from sin, just like Joseph. Anybody here having a hard time? You know, you, you list it. We can find a biblical story to match it with a person's determination, with a person, by the help of God, a person's determination. So whatever problem you have, let me find a Bible story that can match up against that so that you can 
do better next time. But that's not the gospel. That's not even really what the Bible is designed for. Did you know that? I mean, that's the easiest way for me to teach it. It's just not what the Bible is designed for. The Bible isn't about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not about Joseph and Moses and the children of It's not even about the land of Israel. The Bible is about God and his eternal love for us and the fact that he made everything. So we're not here to get tips or develop life skills. What we are here is to, from the word of God, hear truth about who he is. Like, where is this world going? Like, what is ultimately going to happen to me one day when I cease to live on this side of eternity and I'm looking God face to face? I believe that that day will come for every human being, that they will meet God. And at that moment, are you prepared to meet him? Because he will meet you. So these three things I want us to just appreciate um, since the the Bible's really a story about God, okay? Number one, the consistency of God. Um, You will hear, not just me, but whoever preaches from here, you will hear us try to talk about God in consistent language. Many of us still have this tendency to believe that the God of the Bible... um, kind of went through phases, you know what I mean? Kind of like, you know, you have your junior high phase and you got your high school phase and then you have like real life, which is your college phase. Um, And now we're realizing, well, no, 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 no. All of that was preparation for the rest of life. Uh, Isn't it true? You either spend all your time wanting to get to college, wanting to get out of college, or then later on in life, wishing you could kind of go back and enjoy college the right way, right? So you have these different phases and we look at God that way. Yeah, the God of the Old Testament, lots of rules, lots of regulations. Um, he's kind of this real strict, kind of a military uh, God. He just, hey, here's what I want you to do, and I want you to do it this way, and I want you to do it that way, and if not, strike you dead, give you a plague, right? We're going to talk about plagues today. This is how God operates, right? This is how God works. And then I don't know if it's just time, like maybe God became like a grandparent, maybe, I remember when my wife and I began to look at my parents when we had young children and realized, who are these people? Because when I grew up, I grew up back in the day where when mom brought food, you ate it. Pretended you liked it, but did. my dad didn't ask me, do you like it? It was eat it. How many remember the good old days where we had to eat all that terrible food? Remember that, right? Okay, so there we are in that moment and I'm looking at my parents and I've got these same rules for my kids and my own father, who I thought I knew and could trust, my own father is hiding my children's food, okay? He's hiding it. And I'm thinking to myself, who are you and what did you do with my dad? Like this isn't making sense. And then my dad would say to me, well, son, When you get older, you begin to realize that a lot of these things don't matter as much as, I mean, now looking back on my perspective, and honestly, I'm kind of glad I got the stricter dad. I really am. I'm kind of glad I got a dad that's held me to a standard. Grandparents, okay, that's another sermon. So you hear what I'm saying though, right? But don't we have that view of God? Like the God of the Old Testament's just kind of new with kids? Or the, yeah, the Old Testament, he's new with kids. And then the New Testament, he's had us around for a while. And he's just kind of relaxed a little bit more. You know what? I know that in the Old Testament, it's about law and work. And it's about all this stuff. New Testament's about what? Grace. It's about grace and love. That's not true. And one of the things I want to do is I want to go back and I want to look at those Old Testament passages. We did this in our previous series called The Gospel of the Patriarchs. We looked back and we saw a God of 
love and grace and mercy, a God with high expectations. It's, it's the same God. He does not, the Bible loves to talk about that God does not change. He is consistent. The second thing is, um, and it's not just another way to describe it, that God is faithful. So he's not just consistent in terms of his character, but he's faithful to his promise. And this is one thing that I think is so critical for you and I to deal with because there are so many people that are walking through certain phases or certain stages in life and we begin to ask deeper, more penetrating questions about God. And so when we were younger and God kind of, we had this simple view of life and we had a very optimistic view of our future, it was easy for us to believe in God and get excited about God, but now life is, it's hit us hard and it's difficult. And I'm still praying. And before, it seemed like I was getting the answer to my prayers. God, I just, need a, I just need a girlfriend. I just need a girlfriend. Now I just need her to like me. Now I need her to like me. Now I need her to say yes. Now I need her to say yes. Now, I mean, we kind of walk through. And then you're married, and you're like going, ah, wow, this is more complicated than I thought. And now, all of a sudden, you're really wrestling with this. Now, do I have to stay married? Do I have to, how do I get out of this? I mean, there's all these questions that we have. And so it seemed like God was saying, yes, yes, yes. And now you've got this big mess of a life and it's got a wife or a husband and kids and a job and all of this stuff. And your parents are getting older and people you know are, are sick. And it's just, I, what happened to the good old days when it was just like, God, I just, I just need a friend or I just need something simple. And now you just have life. And to realize that God is still faithful. That it's not the little small circumstances in life. But I love thinking about this as we were listening to what we need to know to prepare for today's message. That there were lots of years that the children of Israel, what they had, and it's really all they needed, was just God's promise. Like they still had God's promise. Well, but I want to land. Well, hold on, hold on. You still have his promise. I don't want his promise. That's what a lot of... Christian people, I don't want his promise. I want the reality of that promise now. That's what I want. I don't want the promise. I want the reality of the promise. And I just want you to remember that in those moments, very real responses to difficult things, God is faithful. The last thing that I hope this series will help us do is to actually see the real heart of God, the heart of him. What is God like? Not only is he consistent, and not only is he faithful, I mean he's working towards something, but then the heart of God is always one that is gracious and kind and loving. Now hear me. That doesn't mean that there won't come with, as we see in the book of Genesis, or book of Exodus, it's not that it won't come with judgment. It's not that the holiness or the righteousness of God and his love just means that everything just all melts away. Um, it takes a rather creative um, and selectively uh, applied mind to create up some kind of idea called love wins. Okay, that's not the way it describes it. The kind of love wins that the Bible ultimately describes is the fullness of God's heart for us. I love the book of Ephesians that tells us um, to celebrate the great love with which God loved us, that he would send his son to die in our place. And so I love how the Bible even speaks about this incredible heart of God, and I, I always use this as an example, is that so often when there is something that, that, that we need, we need to see better, and God has these for us, and he kind of holds them out, and what does he do? He literally just says, hey, hey, do you want this? And we think that it's our job through the good things that we do to kind of pull it out of his hands, Right? 
that if I'm just good, or if I just go to church, or if I just whatever, then I can somehow by my good works slowly open the reluctant hand of God. And then so at the very end, through my wonderful things that I've done for the creator of the universe, and now God's hand is open, but if you ever notice, this is a wrong way to see God, that as you're taking that which he is now giving you, you can tell he's not happy. Fine, you know, you worked for it, so I guess I gotta give it to you, but I'm still really mad. Like, that's not God. That's not who he is. That's not his character. That's not his nature. He is truly loving. He desires that no one would perish. He truly desires what is best for us to the point where if we would just get our heads around all that God has done for us, um, it's, just, it's, it's hard not to just be overwhelmed by the bigness and the goodness of God. So the consistency of God, the faithfulness of God, and the heart of God that then helps us answer these two questions. There are two questions that we're gonna deal with this morning that are questions that the children of Israel dealt with, questions that we deal with all the time as we go through life. And, and, and particularly when we're going through um, the difficult times, it, it looks like this. These two questions we are constantly asking. Number one is, does God know? Is God aware that my kid's in the hospital? Is God aware that my marriage is in trouble? Is God aware that I just lost my job? Is God aware that I'm not happy in my job? Is God aware that I'm really concerned where this relationship is going? Is God aware of, of me being really uncertain about getting a, a career when I get, does God know that I don't know if I will like my career? Does God know? Maybe we actually think that sure, he knows in some very loose sense, but in reality, um, maybe all of our requests and all of the experiences of our life end up in like God's cosmic junk mail file. I mean, just think about how many lives exist in this room. How many relationships in this room. And then realize like this is such a small part of humanity throughout all human history. I mean, it, it makes sense, right? That it would be It'd be kind of crazy. How, how does God keep track of all of that? Well, let me tell you just how big God ultimately is. This is why we're dealing with something that is just on a completely different level or plane than us. And so it's easy for us in the very small, individual, but deeply real struggles of life to maybe feel like God doesn't know. Maybe your prayer might, to God might be consistently Please check your junk mail file because I don't think you can hear me. Like, do you know? And then, then when we believe he knows, we have to answer that second question which follows closely on its heel, which is then, then do you care? Like, why am I still in this pain? Why am I still anxious? Why am I still concerned? Why am I not seeing any fruit from this? Why am I not? Why am I not? Why am I not? Do you care? These become the ultimate questions that we're asking right now that this time is really asking in the Western world the, the, what is known as the theodicy question, the problem of evil and the problem of pain that exists in the world and God is being questioned in that realm probably more than ever in human history. God, do you know? And I, I can somehow convince you, yes, he knows. And now you're asking, the, but then why? Like, does he really care? Does he really care? And the answer is yes. Now, by the way, I, I don't know if you'll like in terms of how he cares. 
But the Bible does not give us a he doesn't know or he doesn't care answer. We're going to be in Exodus 12 today, but before we get there, I want you to turn to Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, verses 7 through 9, these are verses that I use in my own life's experience. When I begin to wonder or question the ability of God to know or the ability of God to act or the ability of God to care about my life and my circumstances, I go back to this story. This is early on in the, um, uh, the story of the Exodus. It's just chapter three, but let me tell you, it's kind of interesting. When the book of Exodus opens up, the children of Israel are not in the land. It's actually been roughly 400 years from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. 400 years. That's a lot of time. It's a lot of time to wonder. I mean, um, imagine if we just waited for God for 400 years. Ready? Let's just start now. Think about that. Think about 400 years of waiting and how many generations are going to come and go and come and go and come and go. And as a nation, they are waiting, but nations are made up of individuals and they are hurting and they are wondering, has God forgotten us? Imagine waiting 400 years for an answer to your prayers. We don't know if all of their time was spent in slavery. Probably it wasn't. They probably spent many of those years just enjoying this incredible land that God had provided for them. The land that they were in in Egypt that they had been given was actually a very fertile, productive land, and that nation began to grow like crazy. It's also interesting to know that in Genesis chapter one, or sorry, in Exodus chapter one, Moses is born he is, uh, it's a difficult time. They're killing the children of Israel. You probably know the story. His parents put him in this basket. His mom puts him in a basket, takes him down to the river. It's kind of his name means drawn from the water, Moshe or Moses, drawn from the water. And he ends up living in Pharaoh's house. He ends up being raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He's educated in all the great things of Egypt. And 40 years pass and then finally he gets into a kind of a very difficult confrontation with an Egyptian who has, mur who has uh, kind of picking on one of his own fellow Hebrews and Moses murders him, hides his body in the sand and when Moses finds out that others know about this, he's really afraid of how this is going to go with the Pharaoh and so he flees, okay? 40 years have passed. Now, 40 more years have passed and Moses is just a shepherd in the desert somewhere between Egypt and the promised land. And he's just living life. And he's 80 years old. <laughs> 80 years old. And God goes, okay, fine. you're going, man, I just feel so old. I'm 21. You know? I mean, I just feel so old. I'm 45. Moses is 80. And God says, okay, now you're ready. God calls to him out of this burning bush. And it's interesting what he says because it's almost like he's answering questions that the text isn't asking, but the people of Israel must have been. God, do you know? And God, what are you gonna do about what's going on? We have now been slavery for we don't know how long, but for a while, and we are not in where we need to be. And you promised, God, look at verse seven, of Exodus chapter three. This is that encounter in front of the burning bush. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. So yeah, and again, that really does answer the question, like God, like have you seen and do you know? And the answer to that question is always yes. 
It is the all-seeing eye. Jesus loved to teach that God knows the hairs on our head, that God cares for just the simple things, the birds that, uh, that he cares for. I mean, he describes all of the intricate, loving care that God has. And so, fine, I'll give you he knows things, but what are you going to do about it? And I love how it continues in verse eight. Not only have I seen, and not only do I know your sufferings, verse eight, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place where the Canaanites and the Hittites, yeah, Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Why include all those names? For two reasons. Number one, it is good for us to realize that that statement of a flowing land and that statement of all of those tribes describing a particular land is the exact same phrase, the exact same context that God gave to their four, 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 forefather Abraham. This is the land where these people, the Hittites and the Perizzites and the, the Canaanites, this is the land that you're actually going to have. Uh, the land flowing with milk and honey. This what is known as this one part of the fertile crescent. And if you look at that world, it is desert all around and then it is incredibly productive where it is. And God says, this land that I'm giving you, the land that I promised you, the land you are now about to receive. So you might have wondered if I was paying attention. You might have wondered whether or not I was ever going to deliver, but the truth is I, I will. Now one thing that I just have to wrestle with, if I can just kind of share with you my own thoughts. Sometimes my wife says, I don't want to ever like, be in your head sometimes because it just scares me. And it's not because I'm really intelligent. I just have a lot of weird thoughts, okay? You ever wondered? Here's what I wonder. Okay, but it's awesome that these guys are going to get out, but what about all those generations that never experienced it? Like how many generations never got that? About 400 years worth? Wow. I love to just think about just how long time is, how long history can be. Going back and dealing with the question about winter and about the cultural shift and then being very, very honest, I doubt if I'm going to see what other generations have seen. I, I don't know exactly where this is going, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if history continues down the road that it's going on. And, and maybe, just maybe, my great, great, great grandchildren might, should the Lord not come back, my great, great, great grandchildren might just live in a different day in an age. Wow. Yeah. For most of human history, it is just fraught with difficulties, which means we need to see the deeper, stronger, sovereign hand of God. The other reason why I think it's critical that we look at these names is because here's what it helps me realize. Those names are mentioned because it's not just Israel, contrary to what a lot of people think, it's not just Israel that God cares about. But God's not wrapped up in any one individual or any one plan. God's going to do what God's going to do at his hand. And so not only does he have the nation of Israel in Egypt that he wants to rescue out, but there are also people made in his image who are living rebelliously against him. And God is showing incredible patience and kindness to their situation. How many of you heard anybody say, Man, all those terrible things that happened back in the Bible days, all those terrible judgments that God, like we're about to see them, 
that God's going to pull the nation of Israel out and then he's going to send them into this land and all of these terrible things. Well, you do realize that God patiently waited in judgment over Canaan for over 400 years. The patience of God. The patience of him. See, sometimes we can just go through life and, and literally because our perspective can be so small is that we just get wrapped up with what's happening to us. I was reminded of this just a few weeks ago, had the opportunity to uh, spend a weekend in the hospital. Always a great weekend time, you know? And I'm with our youngest son who was uh, admitted on a Friday and we're just waiting. And, and, and you know what it's like to wait. Anybody had to wait in a hospital? Anybody ever have to wait in a hospital? Yeah. Where are they? What are they doing? Don't they know we're here? Room 828, hello, right? Because there was one time we had a serious problem. We had gone to um, the video store to get a video, okay, to watch it, and uh, we couldn't get the sound to come through the TV. And so we're there, Max is actually up. He's the one in the hospital, we're you know, trying to care for him. And I think you're still kind of hooked up at the time. And we got the TV off the wall and we're trying to figure out how to get the sound through, right? You know, and so we've got an emergency. Max, push the button again. I have no idea where that nurse is. Irresponsible nursing staff here at OU Children's. If this was OSU Children's, there'd be somebody to help us at every moment, right? So we're trying to work on these things and why, 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 why? And sometimes it's good to go through those moments because then later on you walk the halls and I don't know if you, I didn't know this, but actually there are other sick kids there too. Like, we're, you know, we're in 826 or whatever the number was. There was somebody in 825 and an 824 and an 823 and an 822 and an 821 and an 819 and an 8. I mean, there were just sick kids on that entire floor. And I'm wondering, where are you? We, we wanted to get out as early as we could on Monday. Can we get out? Can we get out? We just want to get out. Well, you need to work on it. You need to let them know earlier on in the day. And so at eight o'clock in the morning, we're up. We'd love to go. We'd love to go 5.30 in the afternoon. They're finally going, okay, I think we're ready to dismiss you now. What have you been doing all day? Because we have been waiting, you know. Leaving and just walking down the hall and just seeing all the children that aren't going to be dismissed today. And all of a sudden, I just, I realized, wow, like, I, maybe the whole world isn't about me. Like, like, maybe everything that's happening in the world doesn't revolve around me. You think that's possible? And God has this amazing love and care. And I, 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 I just, this seems crazy to me. And he is weaving this all together for his glory. And the Bible actually teaches, and even for our benefit, that somehow all of these things come together. I mean, it can just blow your mind. And so God relates, I have seen and I know what is going on all around me and now I've come down and now I'm going to do something. And you just needed to wait until my time was right. See, one of the questions that as Christians we should ask when we're dealing with these very real problems. I'm not saying forget your problems. No, that would be more of a, a Buddhist or a Hindu perspective. The Bible doesn't offer that kind of a, well, you really don't have problems. No, the Bible says you really do have problems. And they are deep and they are profound and we can cry out in frustration and confusion and then we trust that God is over this. Do you see the difference? 
I'll never ask you to pretend. I'll ask you, and by the way, you're allowed to ask me, to trust God in the midst of it. See, what we get to look at in this section in uh, Exodus is God's plan of deliverance for the children of Israel where God comes down and says, I know that you're going through these physical problems. I know that you are going through this terrible hardships. And now what I want you to do is I want you to see my incredible deliverance. If you turn to Exodus 12, we actually see this unfolding when God is going to uh, bring about his final judgment. Now, I don't know if you've ever kind of studied why this is. It's interesting that what we actually see in the Bible is this depiction of God's struggle with the nation of Israel against other nations. And by the way, these struggles are not just generic struggles. A lot of the battles and a lot of the wars that actually exist are truly the nation of Israel or God who is demonstrating who he is against this backdrop of other nations who believe in other things. When I watched as a kid the Charlton Heston, Moses, Ten Commandments thing, I always wondered, why frogs? Like, why is God killing the livestock? Like, why is God bringing darkness? What's the big deal about darkness? And then when you go back and you realize that each of these plagues that God pours out is not just a generic um, accusation, but God is picking apart the Egyptian religious system and saying, hey, let me show you that you might think you're in control, Pharaoh. You might think that your religious system is in control, but let me show you that I am. One of my favorite ones, one of the biggest Egyptian deities is Ra, the sun god. And God says, okay, you, you wanna do this? We can do this. And there's darkness. What, what, what do you think the Egyptians would think? Well, let's just pray to the sun god, who, as the Bible teaches, isn't really there. Like the sun was, is not ruled by a god, but by the god. It was made by God himself. Yahweh is his name. When God said, let there be light, and there were light and lights. And they're under his control and direction. And when God said, no light, there was no light. So why don't you just march off to your little raw temple and see what you can do? And so they did. And guess what? <laughs> Nothing. And then God says, okay, by the way, I'm, I'm done with that one now. Light on again. And this is the picture that we actually see of God. He is bringing about his judgments, not just generically against Egypt, but each of those plagues, specifically against a certain Egyptian deity that they thought they could trust in, that they thought that they could rely on, and God's saying, you have no idea how big, you have no idea, I'm the only one up here in the God world. I'm by myself. This is how life really is. And now God is coming with his final judgment and he is going to pass over the land. It's interesting, most people kind of think about this, this death angel figure, all of the word is actually used in the text. God in this text, I'm coming down myself to do this. And he is about to judge. He is about to bring judgment against Egypt. And he says to the children of Israel, but if you just apply, and by the way, I'm very aware about communion today. If you just apply the blood of the sacrificed lamb over the door posts, then when I come to kill and to destroy, I will pass over you. Notice the deliverance that God provides in Exodus chapter 12, verse 7. 
He, the Egyptians are told this, then they shall take, God speaking to Moses to will then speak to them, then they shall take some of the blood of that sacrificed lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel or the overhead part of the door of the houses in which they eat. This is how it is. By the way, just a reminder, this is why I don't believe it's what we do that opens the hand of God, but that God is always already there prepared to provide for us. That what we do as Christians is a response to what God has done that is so critical for you to know. We're not here to proclaim or even to challenge you to be better, to be smarter, to be gooder, to be all, no, that's a bad word, a wrong word. Um, uh, I, for some of you who are English teachers, I just said a bad word, but the, you know what I mean? We're talking about, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about as human beings made in God's image, responding to what God has already done, to the promises that are already coming, to the plan that God has already set in motion and is working together for his glory. We are here, I am here to proclaim to you what is. And to say, do you realize that God desires in his goodness for you to experience this as well? And so, in verse 12 of Exodus 12, we see this promise coming to be. He says, for I, speaking of God, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh, I am Lord. The blood shall be assigned to you. This is the blood of the sacrificed lamb. The blood will be assigned to you on the houses where you are. And when you see the blood, or when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Where we get the, you know, the concept of pass over. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, that is rich in symbolism, isn't it? That God's judgment is going to come against those who rebel against him. He cannot be mocked forever. He is incredibly patient. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting. But then for everyone, there comes time when we give account for our lives. I know it might seem like a shock that the creator of the universe would care that somehow you've decided to ignore him. To completely cast him to the not very important or not very necessary category of life. He takes that rather seriously. Uh, most people I meet aren't trying to undo God. They actually consider him maybe to not be there, which by the way, his name means I just exist. So I think it's kind of odd that we're debating whether or not the one who is, by his own nature, always inexistent exists. I know you're going, I don't understand the big deal. What have I done? I've lived my whole life for myself, but if you were made in his image, then you're robbing him. You know, all I've done is tried to build my own kingdom. Yeah, but if all of this is God's and you're not giving thanks and honor to him who gave it to you, I still don't get it. Pharaoh didn't get it either. The Hittites didn't get it. Perizzites didn't get it. Jebusites didn't get it. They decided to bow down and worship other gods. And, and by the way, you might think, well, that's not me. No, I, I promise you, there is still power and sex and money and there are all of these new idols that we love to bow down where we find meaning and purpose, where we find trust, where we find hope that are just as false as the gods of Egypt. 
And I, I just, I need you to know the Bible doesn't teach that there are bad people and then there are good people and then most people are in the middle. What the Bible actually teaches, you ready? Everybody's bad because we all have decided to rebel against God. And God in his goodness has made a way for you and I to find peace again. And so this destruction that comes upon the land of Egypt and the salvation that comes particularly to those in Israel is a hope that you and I can find. So we take that story, this wonderful God's plan of deliverance in Exodus 12, and, and we realize that all of that, which is very real and historically true, was actually a picture or a shadow of a greater reality. That God is not just interested in our physical liberation, our physical freedom, our physical prosperity, but that ultimately God cares more about our deeper, more profound, more real need of deliverance and peace from the animosity that we have with him. And that's what Jesus ultimately came. Not, not Moses, because Moses, Moses could only, at God's wonderful direction, get Israel out of Egypt. But who can rescue them from the slavery of their own sin? Like you do realize when you read the story of Moses, it's not like, yeah, and then once we got up out of Egypt, everything was awesome. No, they had 40 more years of rebellion. And who can rescue us from that? Who, you know what I want to know? is not who can rescue me from all the problems of you people that are messing my life up. But who can rescue me from me? Who can save me from my own selfishness, my own self-directedness, my own kingdom making, which is nothing more than building sandcastles? Who can rescue me from that? And the answer is Jesus. And in the exact same way that God rescued the children of Israel up out of Egypt, God rescues you and me from our own rebellion, our own slavery to live for ourselves. Here's the comparison, Mark chapter 14, this wonderful spiritual deliverance that God has planned in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is uh, ready to celebrate this incredible Passover. Um, and so it's at that moment, this covenant relationship that God has with the children of Israel, God is now going to make with his new people through, uh, through, the, through the covenant of Jesus' body and blood, which we will celebrate here this morning. In verse 22 of Mark 14, Jesus, on the night that he is about to be betrayed, Jesus is gathering with his disciples, and they're eating the Passover like they had done so many other times before. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and he said take this is my body and he's holding the unleavened bread from the uh, from the Passover this is now my body I, I want to take all of those amazing rich traditions of what God did over a thousand years ago for our people in Egypt and I want to now apply them in a deeper fuller ultimate sense Jesus is saying listen you guys can celebrate the freedom of people who've been long since freed but what I am doing is now the purpose behind all of that. Take, this is my body. And then he took the cup when he had given thanks. He gave it to them and he says, uh, and they drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood. There were four cups that were given during the Passover meal. And each cup represented different stages of God's deliverance. That third cup, which when you look at how the order of this service is going and with Jesus and his disciples, he is holding that third cup. It is the cup of redemption. 
That's why he says, this is the blood. It's not the blood of anything. It's this is the blood. And I'm telling you, I'm the one that can really free you. I'm the one that can provide real freedom. Because your problem, this is, the, this is a, kind of the biblical challenge. My problem isn't that I'm going to get older and die. My problem isn't that I've got some relational problems and relational difficulties. My problem is not that I could work harder or that I need more skills. My problem is that without Jesus Christ, I will face the creator of the universe and I will have nothing to say to him because there's no way that I can impress him by the things that I've done because all I've done is wronged him. And that's why God comes to me and says, I have taken care of that. That's why Jesus is gift. God's grace is kindness, love, and mercy. It comes from his heart. And God had Jesus prepared for me in advance while I was still a sinner. This is the kind of God that I'm asking you to give your life to. I'm begging you to give your life to, but not for his weird benefit, although he will be glorified, but for you. This is my blood, the covenant which was poured out for many, and truly I say to you, I will not drink of the full fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I, I wanna give you something that kind of finds its meaning and some symbolism way back here in the book of Exodus, but now comes really true to you today. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter three as he describes what Jesus Christ fully accomplished. In Romans chapter three, verses one through 26, they're, they're, these should all be underlined in your Bible, by the way. I think when you get to heaven, God's gonna say, let me see your Bible. And if you got the right ones underlined, <laughs> no, because remember, his hand is open. Okay, verse 21, this is how Paul describes a very similar situation. But now the righteousness of God, which means he is going to hold us to his standard, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made, made noticeable, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So I'm gonna give you a way of pleasing God that isn't about following rules and regulations, although all the rules and regulations point to this. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, what I'm asking you to do, brothers and sisters, if you're not yet a brother or sister, is to believe that Jesus Christ has taken care of your problem with God. He goes on to say, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared right, are declared innocent, are justified by his grace as a gift, not work through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Are you ready for this one? You gotta hear this. A propitiation is this, that God is not just passive about our relationship, but outside of Jesus Christ, God has wrath towards people. You know, the Bible teaches that. You might not like it, it might not be popular, popular in terms of uh, pe people's opinion, but, Ephesians chapter two actually says that we by our nature are objects of God's wrath. I know your mom says you're sweet and cute and cuddly and all those things. But the Bible says that without Jesus, you are an object of his wrath. And by the way, 
Right now, you can bow up and, okay, oh yeah, that's what he thinks of me? Well, if that's what he thinks, okay, okay. I, 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 I even understand where you're coming from. I don't think you know who you're dealing with. Can I say that? I, I really do get where you're coming from. But again, you do not know, oh, and by the way, when I said you don't know who you're dealing with, I'm not even yet talking about like the wrath and the judgment. You don't know who you're dealing with because you have no idea how much he loves you. That he would send his son to die for you. Jesus is the propitiation. He is the one that subdues God's wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show that God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance, he waits and he waits and he waits. In his divine forbearance, he has passed over our former sins. It was to show that his righteousness at this present time so that he might be both just, meaning that God is going to demand a sacrifice, and also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God justifies me not by what I do, but by what Jesus has done for me. And so we still end up with those two questions, don't we? Does God know? My circumstances, and the answer is yes. And God not only knows your circumstances, God knows that the greatest need you have is peace with him. The greatest need you have is peace with him. And God has answered that by doing what? By sending Jesus. By sending Jesus for you and for me. And so my challenge to you today is this, is if you have already received it, then I'm gonna just... Eat and drink well, brothers and sisters, knowing the fact that God loves us this much that he sent his son to die. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your savior, I'm just gonna ask you to care at least as much, but more, at least as much, but so much more on your spiritual state. Knowing that one day you will see God. And although he loves you, he will judge you. And you have one of two options. You can either be judged by all of the amazing things that you've done to try to impress the creator of the universe or there to be thank you for the amazing gift of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that, for the peace that only comes through him. And may we find joy this morning as we celebrate the body and the blood of our murdered savior. And may we see just how loving and kind and gracious you are. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.